Father, thank you so much that you have given us your word to teach and encourage, uh, to uh, exhort us, to correct us, to adjust us so that we might follow you and pursue you, uh, that we might uh, seek your glory in all things. And God, help for us to be better followers of Jesus by what we learn tonight. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, uh, we have gone from Cana to Cana, that's chapter 2, to the end of chapter 4. Now we're going to begin uh, this section where Jesus uh, does significant miracles. And uh, as we look through this book of signs, uh, we see that uh, Jesus uh, helps people in a miraculous way. It culminates, as I'm sure you're aware, it culminates... Uh, with the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. That's the culmination of his signs in helping people. Uh, And all the signs that he does, he does to help people, but he does to reveal God's glory. And uh, we see throughout uh, the Gospel of John, Jesus returning to this theme of God's glory, God's glory, God's glory. Uh, In uh, John chapter 12, uh, Jesus said that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Uh, and uh, as he talks about that hour, as he thinks about that hour, the hour being the, the time of his death and crucifixion, uh, and even leading to his resurrection and glorification, but as he's thinking of the horror of the cross, uh, he, uh, he says, Jesus says in John 12, oh, now my soul is troubled. Uh, But what shall I say? God, save me from this hour. Uh, And then he stops and he says, uh, no, Father, glorify your name. Uh, The picture that Jesus paints uh, throughout his life and ministry was to bring glory to God. As he uh, prays his final prayer in John 17, uh, he begins with, uh, Father, uh, uh, the hour has come. Uh, no, Father, uh, let's see, John 17, 1. How does it begin? Somebody give me John 17, 1. I'm, I'm turning 50, so these verses don't stick like they used to. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son might also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give you... Eternal life to as many as you have given to him, and this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work that you've given me to do, uh, and now glorify me uh, with the glory with which I first had uh, with you in the beginning. So Jesus uh, constantly is focused on the glory of God, and as we'll look next week, if we get there, and hopefully we will, uh, by the way, next week you get volume two. Next week we, uh, uh, we uh, will uh, probably not finish this volume uh, tonight, uh, but next week you'll have uh, the rest of the book of John and all the footnotes and commentary and everything uh, on the Gospel of John. We'll give those next week. But uh, as we look at uh, who Jesus is and what he's come to do, we cannot... Um, consider who Jesus is and what he's come to do without also considering that ultimately he came to bring God glory, uh, to reveal, unveil 
God to a watching world. Uh, In John chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9, we see Jesus performing these wondrous, miraculous signs that reveal God's glory. Uh, So let's begin in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, uh, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Uh, Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. And uh, in, in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool, stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. A certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. Just think about that for a second. So here he is, 38 years lame. Jesus walks up and he says, okay, you're healed. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees, didn't care about the healing. They just cared about the fact that he was carrying his bed on the Sabbath, which they deemed, according to their traditions, as being unlawful. God help us from the spirit of the Pharisees where we care more about our traditions than the healing of a heart, the rescue of a soul, a man made well. Verse 11, Jesus answered them. Obviously, he was eavesdropping. He answered them and he said, uh, to them, uh, uh, he who made me well said to me, uh, or the, the, that wasn't Jesus, I'm sorry. Uh, The lame man said, Uh, He who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, well, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Um, unlike myth or story uh, uh, fairy tales, we have here an encounter between Jesus and a man in need of help. And Jesus healed that man. Uh, the lessons that we learn from that is Jesus uh, confronts our weakness with God's power. Uh, he surrounds our brokenness with his compassion. Uh, Jesus takes the initiative. He goes to the man who was lame and he said, do you want to be made well? And of course, the man did want to be made well. So Jesus, in an act of divine kindness and compassion, said to the man, all right, you're healed. That is a beautiful picture of God's grace reaching 
to those who cannot help themselves and providing healing for us. As we look at this passage, I want us to look uh, from a couple of different angles. One angle would be uh, we see uh, the spiritual dimension in this passage, that in the kindness of God, he sends Jesus to bring wholeness to those who are broken. It's an act of his grace, it's an act of his mercy, and it's an act of his compassion. From a spiritual perspective, we all were in the position spiritually of that lame man. We were broken by our sin. We were looking for a pool of Bethesda to dip ourselves into to make ourselves well. Uh, We longed to have our souls saturated with the presence of God, for us to experience the compassion of God, the power of God's love. We long for wholeness on the inside that would give us meaning and significance in our everyday life. We were longing for those things, and Jesus took the initiative with us. If indeed you're followers of Jesus, make no mistake, it's not because you chased after Jesus as much as it is because Jesus chased after you. God takes the initiative in rescuing broken souls. God takes the initiative to pour his grace into our hearts and make us whole. God takes the initiative for your salvation and mine. It is all of God's grace. We're lame, broken, in need of help, and God sends Jesus to heal us. There is in this passage also, uh, in the most literal way, the picture of God's glory demonstrated in healing someone who is lame. I understand in the 21st century we uh, hesitate, perhaps, at least in the Baptist tradition, we hesitate sometimes to talk about physical healing. But friends, make no mistake, the God of Palestine in the first century is the God of Norfolk and Hampton Roads in the 21st century. And the healing that he accomplished through Jesus then is the healing that he can accomplish today. That healing comes by the power of God. And we cannot be so sophisticated in our theological systems or our philosophical ideas that we forget that God still heals. It is to point to his glory, to his power. It is always done in concert with his will, but God still heals. So as we look at this passage and the one that follows in a few moments, we consider how that Jesus himself overwhelms that portrait of pain and sorrow and disease and weakness with his compassion. As we move on and consider how the Pharisees responded, I, I, I think it, it is important for us that we bring the objection of the Pharisees into the present day. I, I said last week that, that uh, we uh, have the spirit of the Pharisees when we elevate our traditions above the text of God's Word. When we elevate our traditions above 
that which God says brings him glory. When we elevate our traditions above what Jesus is working in our world and in our lives and even in our church. When we embrace the spirit of the Pharisees, we are critical of those, even those who have experienced the life-changing power of God pulsing through their spirit, through the work of the Holy Spirit brought to them through Jesus. We can be critical of them. I'm reminded of the first great awakening. Maybe not the second great awakening. The second great awakening was uh, marked by a lot of exuberance. The second great awakening was uh, the season of camp meetings and uh, my roots flow toward uh, the Second Great Awakening. Uh, my family uh, moved from, on my mom's side, moved from uh, Pennsylvania to uh, uh, East Tennessee in the uh, early uh, 1800s or the late 1700s. On my dad's side, they moved from Scotland over into the wilderness of East Tennessee in the early 1800s. And And the spirit of the camp meeting and the Second Great Awakening was alive and well and and, and working through uh, the wilderness areas of East Tennessee and and, and, and Kentucky and and places like that. And it was known for its exuberance where someone would literally stand on a stump and begin to preach. And by the hundreds and even thousands, people would gather around with their lit torches or lamps uh, as someone preached standing on a stump. And, and, and certainly God moved with great power during that time and people's lives were forever transformed. Uh, but in their exuberance and maybe a mark of their, um, their wilderness uh, uh, and adventurous hearts, uh, they uh, would do things that would be uncommon today unless you were at the 11 o'clock service on Sunday. They, they would do things that were uncommon. If you weren't there, don't worry about it. Uh, but, but they would do things that were uncommon. Uh, for instance, uh, there's uh, indication that... Now, these are Baptists and Methodists. Let me go ahead and preface. These are Baptists and Methodists doing these things. As someone would stand and preach and a family member would see one of their own come to faith in Christ, uh, they would begin to howl like dogs and bark at trees as if they were literally, quote, treeing the devil. And uh, that, that's a mark of the second great awakening. And, and so it was a little loosey-goosey during that time. But the first great awakening is not like that. The first great awakening in the uh, first half of the 18th century in the 1740s, led by a guy named Jonathan Edwards and another one by George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley. Uh, They were preaching in in the more civilized colonies of that day, although very few of the colonies were really civilized uh, in the pre-revolutionary war. But as Jonathan Edwards, a congregational pastor, preached, he saw how that in a room similar to this room, a makeup like this, pews like this, except maybe a little bit more difficult to sit on. 
Jonathan Edwards preached sermon after sermon after sermon. We know one of those sermons, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and, and we take note of that, and we think, man, that's a, that's a, that's a hellfire and damnation kind of sermon, and it certainly was. Jonathan Edwards, as sophisticated as he was for a Presbyterian, he was very intent on preaching what he called the terrors. And that is, in order for us to understand the nature of our condition as sinners apart from God, we needed to understand the terror of hell and judgment from God. And so he preached the terrors. He preached other sermons as well. Uh, One sermon he preached was uh, titled The Majesty or the Excellencies of Christ. And and he preached on how glorious Jesus is. And and he called the, the, the people in his church to come to Christ. Come to Christ if you're thirsty. Come to Christ if you're hungry. Come to Christ if you're hurting. Come to Christ. And, and he preached this sermon on, on, on the excellencies of Christ. But through his preaching, God began to move among the people and so much so that in the middle of a service, a young lady stood up and said, I need Jesus. She didn't use that language, but that's what she said. And Jonathan Edwards appealed to her to come to Christ. On and on that began to happen, and and there were extravagances, crying, weeping, emotion that went along with that great revival and that spiritual awakening of of the 18th century. But it left other Presbyterians a little miffed. There were other Presbyterians, uh, the Congregationalists, uh, who were very, very disconcerted with the out loudness of coming to Christ. Uh, they criticized Edwards. They criticized the movement. They criticized how much emotionalism was involved in in this movement. And so, uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote a treatise uh, on the surprising works of God's great grace and insights into the spiritual awakening that was taking place and, and, and literally defended the emotionalism. Why? Because he knew that a changed life was going to be excited and encouraged. Oh, that we would have an excited life even though we've been followers of Jesus for some time. As we look at Edwards, we understand that there is an urgency of the gospel that leads us to help others who don't know Jesus to come to know him. And when they come to know him, it might get messy. It would disrupt our worship gatherings. It would disrupt what we have programmed to do. God begins to move. It's not like we can control it. We didn't initiate it. God, by his spirit, has initiated it. And so, uh, Jonathan Edwards stands as an example of how we should embrace that movement of God. But on the other side, the spirit of the Pharisees was alive and well with the old lights of the Presbyterian church criticizing this movement, acting as if any show of emotion was out of place and 
unusual and, and something that was even demonic. Today, we as the church in the 21st century, Baptists though we may be, we have a tendency toward the spirit of the Pharisee. We enjoy the comfort and the ease that we have come to know as followers of Jesus gathered in a church. We, we, we find comfort in things that we can explain and we can manage and navigate. But when God moves, friends, that is beyond our control. It is outside the realm of something that we can dictate or determine. It's God moving with great power. Oh, that God would move like he did at the pool of Bethesda. And may we, the church, reject the spirit of Pharisees regarding our traditions as more vital than a changed life. May we reject the spirit of the Pharisees and not stand as if we were superior to those who are expressing the raw emotions felt because their lives have been changed. Today, may we embrace the spirit of Jesus. Do you want to be made well? Today, we can hear Jesus speaking into our lives and into our experiences as he begins to speak and teach. We go down and as we look at verse 16 and following, it says that for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus. For what reason did they persecute Jesus? Yeah, uh, it, he, he told somebody to carry their mat on a Sabbath. They were persecuting him because their traditions outweighed the glory of God. One of the prime ways that we, the church, can miss God's glory is when we are so in tune with our traditions that we lose sight of God's movement, of God's power, of God's purpose. So as we look at this passage, we see that the Pharisees sought to persecute Jesus. They even sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Verse 17, Jesus gives a defense of what he was doing on the Sabbath. He's saying that God's busy doing his work. Ultimately, what Jesus was saying was, God's not going to take a break healing somebody's life on a Sunday or a Saturday in that regard uh, just because your tradition thinks that's outlandish or outside the realm of the law. Jesus was correcting their perspective on their traditions and casting their traditions in the light of God's purposes. Verse 18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal to God. Then Jesus answered and said, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. 
Jesus is doubling down. Y'all know that phrase, doubling down? They, they wanted to kill him because he was making himself equal to the Father. Jesus didn't back up from that. He doubled down. He said, yep. He said, the son can't do anything of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. The father loves the son, shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. And that is in regard to his resurrection. Verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives life life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son, that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Today, we need to understand that to show honor is to submit. We like to talk about, well, we want to honor and therefore we, we, we say good things about God. Well, saying good things about God is right and true and we should. But in this regard, as Jesus speaks in verses 23 and 24, he says clearly that, that the picture of honor is submission. The son honors the father by submitting to the father. We should honor the Father by submitting to the Father. As we look at this passage and as we consider the teaching of Jesus here, we are called to honor God the Father and God the Son. And I wonder if we lived with that perspective how our lives would change how our attitudes would be different toward one another, toward the lost, toward those with whom we might disagree. I wonder if we submitted ourselves to God the Father and God the Son, I wonder how our behavior would change. Would we still pursue those things that are dishonorable to Him? As I was Going through this passage again this afternoon, I, I was compelled to confess again my sin and repent of it, burdened by my own sinfulness. You see, when we as followers of Jesus commit ourselves to follow Jesus, honoring Him becomes not just an opportunity for a Sunday morning exercise, Honoring Him becomes the lifestyle that we embrace. And if I'm going to honor Him, that means I submit my behaviors to Him, my thoughts and the intent of my heart. It means I submit my will to Him and my relationships to Him. It means that I submit all that I am to Him for His glory. And when I sin against God, whether it's in my head or in my hands, whether it's in my attitudes or in my actions, when I sin against God, I am not honoring him. I'm not pleasing to him. I'm not following after Jesus. And thinking through that and the spirit of God speaking to my heart, I was compelled to confess and repent my own sin. You know, maybe 
Maybe that's the key for, for you, for me. And not, we all know it's easier to get mad at somebody else's sin than even to acknowledge our own. You see it on Facebook every day, people screaming loudly at the sins of others and all the while acting as if they're not sinning at all. It's easy for us to pinpoint somebody else's sin. It's easy. That's, that's the easiest thing in the world. But I think Jesus addressed it when he said, take care of the speck in your own eye while you're talking about the log in somebody else's. I think if you and I would stop wrangling about somebody else's sin or perceived injustices or sinfulnesses, especially in the church, maybe, just maybe, it would give the Spirit of God and the Word of God room to convict our hearts of our own sin so that we would live right in His sight, so that we would be healthy and whole as followers of Jesus. Are you honoring God with your lifestyle? All right, so as we uh, continue on, we look at this passage and we consider uh, that uh, Jesus begins to speak in clear terms about uh, the judgment uh, and life that come through the Son. Verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Here in verse 24, we have a clear picture of what it means to become a, a, a follower of Jesus and how to have a, a part in God's family. It's not through religious exercise like the Pharisees, uh, but it is hearing the word of Jesus, believing in him who sent Jesus so that we might have everlasting life, might escape judgment and move from death into life. Verse 25, most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Here we have a clear picture of Jesus, the Messiah, the King of the universe, in whose hand the Father has given literally uh, the, uh, the judgment over who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. The key that helps us understand who's going to heaven is our faith and following after Jesus, believing his word, embracing his word. 
the key to understanding who is not going to heaven but who is going to be under everlasting condemnation is everybody else. Everybody else. All right. Verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive the testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in this light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And These are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I don't receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes only uh, from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses himself, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus gives a a short treatise uh, to the Pharisees to help them understand that they are way, way lost. Uh, They have the form of religiosity. They follow the patterns of religious activity. They are stringent in the traditions of their religious code of conduct. And, and, And they say that they have great, great insight into the law and the words of Moses, the Pentateuch, and, and probably shorthand, not just of Moses, but the whole of scriptures. And yet they do not believe the, the one that God the Father has sent. Jesus says, Moses wrote about me, and yet you don't believe his words. How in the world are you going to believe mine? There is something in, in uh, the traditions of the, uh, of the teachers of the law and the religious leaders that, that you had to have some witnesses to, to prove that a person was a prophet. And Jesus says, well, there was John the Baptist. He bore witness of me, but I don't need his testimony. The works that I do, they say that I'm uh, from the Father, but uh, even more so, God has said that I'm from him. And yet all of these things you don't believe. Let me give you your final witness. It's Moses himself. He testified about me, and you don't believe him because you just don't want to believe in me. I believe that certainly there are people outside the church who have that kind of perspective. No doubt. Jesus was a good man, he was a moral man, but he wasn't God-man. My fear is that there are those within the church who are happy to embrace the traditions and the activities of First Norfolk, 
all the traditions that we have, and yet you do not believe the Son. You look like a good Baptist. And often you act like a good Baptist. And you may even be a good Baptist except for this one thing. You don't believe in Jesus. You hold tight to religion, but you don't follow after the king. That's what Jesus was getting at. So as we move forward, that's chapter 5. Now, any questions about chapter 5? That was pretty quick, wasn't it? Not quick enough. Any questions about chapter 5? All right, chapter 6. This is on page 40. Shall I take a drink of coffee? Coffee is my favorite fruit. Peanut butter is my favorite vegetable. (laughs) Chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. Now, uh, throughout the Gospel of John, I don't know if it's in the notes here, but throughout the Gospel of John, uh, John the Evangelist uh, always notes the crowd following him, and and many of them are following him to see signs. Later on in chapter 6, we're going to see they're asking for more signs, um, and, and yet they don't commit themselves to Jesus, and Jesus does not commit himself to them. There is this, this uh, following after Jesus to get what he can give, but there's not the following after Jesus that commits our life to him. And, and so the picture here is uh, even when John uses the terms of faith, they believed in him because of his signs, that there, there's an indicator there that the the, the belief that they had was an insufficient belief. It was uh, a belief in the miraculous and a desire for the, uh, for the power, but, but, but yet they were not believing on Jesus the King. They weren't following after him because of his, his, his standing with God the Father or his purpose and mission to glorify God and give eternal life to sinners. He, they, they were entrusting uh, only their need to Jesus. They only wanted him to fix uh, the stuff that was broken. They didn't want him to uh, bust up their behavior or, or shake up their world in such a way that, that, that they uh, adjusted their life in order to follow after him. They, they, they had this inadequate or insufficient fellowship. And, and at the end of chapter 6, we see that most of the crowd walked away. Uh, from following Jesus because uh, he uh, had some hard words to share with them and, and uh, stuff like, you're not going to follow me unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. We'll get there. All right. So uh, he's talking about the crowd following after him, um, uh, and they, they, they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. Verse 3, and Jesus went up on the mountain. There he sat with his disciples, and the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to test Philip, for 
for he himself knew what he would do. Verse 6 is so beautiful. I love verse 6. I mean, I love it. He's, he's asking Philip, what are you going to do? But he already knew what he was going to do. Uh, test there is not to, uh, uh, to condemn Philip, but to grow Philip's faith. Um, verse 7, Philip answered, I, I, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, here is a lad who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, make the people sit down. And there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in the number of about 5,000. Just a note, the men sat down in the number of about 5,000. I'm not talking about patriarchy here, I'm just talking about accounting. There were 5,000 men. There were many more people as well. Okay? Uh, verse... Oh, where am I? Verse 11. So Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples uh, distributed those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, Jesus said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. And therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men... When they had seen the sign Jesus did, said, This truly is the prophet who has come into the world. Duh. I know that most of you are familiar with this, with this uh, uh, historical account that took place uh, across the Sea of Galilee, uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time here except to just say that it was a miracle of dramatic proportions. I believe, and, and remember I told you that there, uh, you have the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you have John, which is not a synoptic gospel. Well, the synoptic gospels talk about the feeding uh, of people, and, and uh, if, if you look at the synoptics and what John reports, if you combine all them, it, it looks like they're different narratives and different occasions, and I believe that they are. I believe that there was more than one occasion where Jesus fed a multitude of people. Uh, here, uh, Jesus fed 5,000. And so uh, he, he, uh, he, he miraculously um, moves to provide for those who are in need. I, I wonder why it is that the church has such a hard time sometimes sacrificing stuff in order to help people who have needs. I wonder why it is that, I mean, it's hard for us to give up our seat on a Sunday morning or our prime parking spot. It's hard for us to see beyond our politics or our economics or our own perspectives to see those who are in need and understand that the the pattern that Jesus set for us is having compassion on people in need and doing something about it. I wonder why it is that we have such a hard time. I know, my goodness, we're all busy. I'm busy, you're busy, the whole world's busy. I, I know, I know it, it, it takes time and energy to really help people. It it. it, it can wear you out and it, 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 can, it, it can drain you, but 
I, I still believe that if we commit ourselves to follow after Jesus, we're going to have a heart of compassion for those in need so that we do something about it. Not just talk about it, but actually do something about it. I, I think, I, I think that the history of the church would prove this out, that the history of the church is not about holding money in our coffers so that we get wealthy and rich, but the history of the church in its best days is finding ways to help people who had needs. Whether people were sick and infirmed, whether they were filled with leprosy, whether they were orphaned, where they were destitute. The mission of the church was to help people in need and point them to the glory of God. I'm thankful that we are a church that longs to help people in need. Could I stretch us just a little bit, perhaps? So often the way we consider meeting needs of people is by giving our money. I like that. That's good. It's not bad. You all saw the report. If you were in the fellowship hall, we gave $100,000 or more to, in our benevolence offering and that kind of thing. I mean, that's great. Or spent that much. Spent that much or gave that much? Gave that much. Over $100,000. That's, that's amazing. That's, that's, that's strong. But could I also suggest that that spirit of generosity for people in need by giving them and helping them pay light bills and pay rent because they've lost jobs or um, helping single moms because their husbands have abandoned them. You know, the, the stories are endless. And, 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 and that is good and proper and right. But, you know, there are people that gather with us on Sundays that you don't know, you've never seen them before, but they're here, and they have need. Sometimes that need is something as simple as instead of judging them for something they're wearing or maybe even something they say, maybe what they need is a warm hug or a handshake or kindness. I know I talked about this Sunday, especially at 9.30. 9.30, we ran out of parking. You know, maybe, just, just maybe, taking a shuttle from one of the off-site parking locations will help a guest who has never entered the doors here, maybe for the first time in a long time, ever darkening the doors of a church, and, and you parking at an off-site location opens the a parking spot for them so that they're not wandering around lost in the maze of this building. Isn't that a way to help someone in need? I believe it's in Matthew's gospel that, uh, that Jesus, the scripture says that Jesus seeing the crowd was filled with compassion for them. For they were like sheep not having a shepherd. I pray that you and I would be fueled by Christ's compassion. After all, 
We're supposed to be walking in the steps of our Savior. And Jesus always has a plan to help people in need, and, and, and that is an amazing work. But he doesn't help them in need just in a vacuum. He really does want to help them, to point them to God's love and his glory. As followers of Jesus, we're to do the same. So, and I know, goodness knows, uh, well, you know, people don't appreciate it when I help them. So what? Big deal. You're not doing it so that they'll appreciate you. You're doing it because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, honoring him. Well, they don't deserve it. Really? Really? Your attitude is they don't deserve Compassion? Look at how they've lived. Really? As my wife says to me when we're in an argument, you really want to go down that road? <laughs> no, honey, I don't. I'm backing up right now. Uh, whew. You do not deserve God's grace, nor his forgiveness, nor his love. You don't deserve it. The whole of the scripture teaches us that what we deserve is hell. But God in his grace has given us his love and his compassion. And heaven through Jesus. As recipients of such great grace, how can we, honoring Him, suggest I'm not helping them because they don't deserve it? There is a parable Jesus told about a steward who owed his master a bunch of money, and he begged for master's forgiving of the debt, and the master forgave the debt, and then that servant went out and found someone that owed him a pittance of money compared to what he owed his master and threw him in debtor's prison. And the master found out and said to the, had that servant that he had forgiven come before him, and he, and, and he, he threw him in prison and, and, I mean, had great judgment on him because the master had shown the servant mercy and the servant went out and showed nothing but judgment. Let's not let that be our story. And if it is our attitude in any way, may God convict us And lead us to repentance. We haven't even gotten to the good parts of chapter 6. All right. So, um, and, and uh, there at verse 40, I have some good words to say in footnotes and such. Uh, and page 41, some more good stuff. You can look at that. Now, chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. Jesus... Uh, verse 15, Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. So he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. 
And the evening came, and his disciples went down to the sea and got into the boat and went over, to the, uh, over the sea toward Caper- Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. The sea arose because of a great wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received Jesus into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Again, verse 21 is kind of one of those favorite verses for me. Uh, Here they are, they're rowing and 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 rowing, and the wind is blowing, and they can't get to where they want to be. Jesus is walking across the water, and he says, don't be afraid, it is I. Now, when he says it is I, that is, in the Greek language, I am. Uh, and many commentators say he's not doing what, what God did at the burning bush with uh, Moses. You know, the burning bush in, in uh, uh, Exodus and, 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 and Moses is uh, walking along. He sees this bur- burning bush that is not consumed and, and he walks up to it because he's curious. And, and he hears a voice says, take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground. And, and uh, then the bush says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses says, whom shall I send, uh, say, has sent me? And, and, and the burning bush says, tell him that I am has sent me, sent you. I am is uh, really indicated throughout the gospel of John. It's kind of thematic there. Uh, here, I believe, is another picture of one of those I am things. It's not formally known as an I am statement, uh, but I think that Jesus, as he's standing on the molecules of water that he has conformed and, and made to hold him, I mean, imagine that. Can, can, just get the picture of the power of Jesus, the Son of Man. He's walking on dry ground, and he knows that his disciples are struggling in the boat. So as he walks, not even thinking about it, he changes the molecules of water so that they are solid to hold him up. Every step is a miracle. Every step is a transformation of, of, uh, of, of nature that answers to the king of creation. Jesus is the king. So when he's standing on the water looking at his disciples, and he says, it is I, I kind of think that they had flashback to a burning bush. This is the I am. So he gets in the boat, and when he gets in the boat, verse 21, immediately they get to the other side. I just love that. Talking about a, talking about a quantum leap. Can I say, and, and this may be bad exegesis, but, but it is sometimes a prayer that I pray for our church. I pray, God, we're rowing, and we're rowing, and we're rowing, and the wind keeps blowing. I pray, oh God, I pray, that as Jesus gets in our boat, that he would take us immediately to where he wants us to be. I pray sometimes, especially uh, long days and long nights. I, 
it's, it's been one of those weeks, and y'all have these weeks too. There's, uh, this isn't a poor, pitiful me thing. This is just part of my job. But, uh, you know, th- this has been one of those weeks at the church till 8 or 9 o'clock, 9.30 every night this week. And, and uh, so, you know, you get tired and, and uh, you know, all of that is leadership. And as we uh, pursue this vision of a second campus and, and, and all that that entails, and as we uh, navigate through the things that we've got to navigate through here on this property so that we accomplish what God has given us to do, um, as we continually set our gaze upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, um, there, there are a lot of uh, leadership things that have to be done. And, uh, and, and so here I am, I'm, I, I, get, I get tired and I know, I know you get tired. If you're not tired yet, you will be uh, because we've got a lot to do in 2017. And, and, and so as we're rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing, I pray, oh God, just get us to the other side immediately. Sometimes God wants us to row a little bit longer, doesn't he? Sometimes he wants us to just keep on working. The promise is that he'll get us where we need to be. Sometimes it's not uthus. That's the Greek word, uthus. Sometimes it's not with that immediacy that, we, that I want. But we got to keep rowing and rowing and rowing. The other thing we got to do is make sure that, that Jesus is in the boat with us. Nothing is more frustrating than rowing the boat against the wind and Jesus not being in the boat with us. As a church, again, this isn't good exegesis. This is just sermonic stuff. Not every sermon's a good exegetical sermon, but it, it, it preaches really good. Um, some of y'all will get that. That's really funny. Um, but, but, you know... Sometimes we pursue things, and Jesus is still on the shore. And we're pursuing our stuff. And we, we're not even taking into consideration his stuff. I shared with the staff and uh, the first uh, staff chapel that we had uh, for the new year, got all of them together, and I, I, I shared with them my heart uh, for my family um, and my heart for our church, and for our staff, and, and that is to make Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 really um, key, uh, a theme for what we do and what we say and where we go and what we try. And that, that, that verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and he'll get you to the other side immediately. No, he'll make straight your paths. He'll take you where you need to go. You know, I think for us as a church, sometimes it's easier for us just to rehearse where we've always been. I want you to think about that. It's true in my own spiritual journey. It's easy to rehearse where I've always been, the things I've always done, the places I've always seen, the paths I've always walked. But as we follow after Jesus, he is going to take us to new places, to different places. We have to have the commitment and the trust to follow after him, to make sure he's in the boat directing us. 
in all our ways acknowledge him so that he can get us where we need to be. Now that works for us as a staff and I pray that it is the same for you in your own personal journey as a follower of Jesus and as a member of First Norfolk. That you're not rowing the boat with Jesus still on the shore. But that you're following his lead. And it's a smart thing to do, right? He's the one that changes water molecules so he can walk on water. All right? So, that's, uh, that's that. Got, we've got to get through chapter 6. <sighs> All right. So, uh, verse 22. By the way, verse 21 says, Then they willingly received him into the boat. I, 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 think, I think part of our challenge is that the willingly aspect uh, sometimes isn't our heart. You know, sometimes our heart is grudgingly. Sometimes our heart is um, uh, rebelliously trying to keep him out of the boat. Uh, The disciples willingly, and one of the reasons the disciples willingly let him in the boat is because he's standing there on water. One of the reasons they let him in the boat was because uh, he's the one who just fed 5,000 folks. One of the reasons they let him into the boat is because he said, don't be afraid, it is I. One of the reasons they willingly let him into the boat is because they understood that he had the words of life and they needed him. One of the reasons we don't let Jesus in the boat is because we don't know how much we need him. So we move forward. Uh, Verse 22. Uh, On the following day, Uh, When the people were standing on the other side of the sea, uh, when they were standing on the other side of the sea, and they saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. That's a long sentence. And it's not over. Verse 23, however, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into the boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? That one sentence begins in verse 22 and goes all the way to verse 24. That's one sentence. Might not make that much of a difference to you, but can I just say, trying to translate that from the Greek is a real pain. Um, I think really the key in that sentence is the last phrase we have in the English, seeking Jesus. They wanted to, they wanted to get hold of him. They wanted, they, earlier they wanted to make him king. They, they, they wanted Jesus. They, they wanted to be around him. So they ask him when they find him at, uh, on the other side, they, they say, when did you come here? And Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. And then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work 
the works of God. And uh, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? He just fed 5,000. What sign will you perform? Seriously? Can, and this is an aside. Can, can you believe how stubborn they are? Can you believe how stubborn you are? Honestly, Jesus has saved us. He's saved us from hell itself. He's given us life eternal. He's poured his spirit within us. He's he's made our lives meaningful. He's given us the promise of heaven and he's filled our souls with hope. And we say, God, are you still there? What sign will you show me today? I get sometimes that's honest. I mean, you're going through a deep, dark valley and you're struggling and you, you, need, you need a little extra measure of hope. And, and, and it's like uh, that, that, uh, uh, that Winnie the Pooh cartoon where Winnie the Pooh and Pip, Piglet are walking off into the sunset hand in hand and, and Piglet looks up and, and says, Pooh? And, and Pooh looks down and says, yes, Piglet. And Piglet looks up and says, nothing. I just wanted to make sure you were there. And sometimes that's the way it is with us and God. So I'm not talking about those honest, uh, those honest emotions of, God, we need some reassurance today. The Psalms are filled with that. But I'm talking about when we, when we are pursuing God's will and, and he's shown himself powerful. I mean, he's, he's done miraculous and mighty things for us and, and, and toward us. And, and, and then we look up and we say, well, you know, God, what are you going to do next? What have you done for me lately? So Jesus goes on. And uh, 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 this is working. Verse 31. Verse 31. Uh, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of my father who sent me, that, all of, uh, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Uh, just walking through this, we're on page 44 of the note sheet. Uh, as we look at this one section of this passage, uh, in verses 26 and 27, uh, they're, 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 Jesus is saying, uh, you seek me not because of the signs, but because you ate bread. He's saying, look, the reason you want more of me is because I gave you food for your stomach. 
And then he goes on, he says, stop chasing after things that aren't going to satisfy. Bread comes, fills your tummy for a second, and then it's gone. He said, I want to give you something that will satisfy you for all eternity. You and I, we become so earthbound in our perspectives as followers of Jesus, and we're chasing after the mighty dollar or the next name recognition or, or, or some uh, video game or, or the... the, the uh, the political scene. We're chasing after all these different things and they become the focus of our lives. Go back through. If you've got Facebook, go back through and just look at your Facebook feed. What are you reposting? What are you talking about? Is that an indicator? I'm just asking. Is that an indicator of what you're chasing after to satisfy your soul? The things that you think are going to make you fulfilled? It's just a thought. What do you devote all your time to? 50% of your time to. What, what do you give yourself toward? What are the things that you're chasing after? Might I humbly suggest that Jesus' words in 26 and 27 speak to us today about what we're chasing? That we are to chase after the things that will satisfy. That means we've got to chase after Jesus. Take hold of him, not because he fills our tummy with food, but because he gives us life eternal. So uh, Jesus says, stop chasing uh, things that won't satisfy. And then, and then he talks about pursue life-giving soul satisfaction from, from Jesus. And that's verse 27. Don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. And then verse 3 talks about doing the works of God. Uh, uh, Not verse 3, verse 28 and 29. Uh, They said to him, what work should we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. This is earth shattering for them. And maybe it's earth shattering for you. Jesus didn't say, well, here's what you need. You need to feed the poor. You need to pray your prayers. You need to... to, uh, you know, uh, go do uh, this act of kindness and you need to make sure that you vote Republican or Democrat or Tea Party or Independent or whatever. And uh, he, he didn't say, I, I'm sorry, did that cause disruption? Anyway, uh, bringing in politics. It's over. We don't have to worry about it anymore. All right. So God is sovereign. Amen. amen. Romans 13. Amen. amen. I keep reading it. And believe in it. All right, so here we go. So, so we, 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 we want to work the works of God. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that we shouldn't feed the poor or give our tithes and offerings or, or, or do acts of kindness. He wasn't saying don't do that, but he's saying the work of God is this. First and foremost, you believe in him who he, whom he has sent. What's earth-shattering is Jesus was rewriting what they believed it took to get to heaven. Jesus said, here's what it takes to get to heaven, not that you do all these good works, but rather that you believe in Jesus. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom the Father has sent. Oh, that we would embrace this, that we would stop thinking that we can somehow manipulate God 
into getting, letting us get into heaven by doing some good stuff and start knowing that the work of God that releases heaven's promises for us is believing in Jesus. And that idea of believing in Jesus is different than just wanting him to meet our needs. That idea of believing in Jesus is entrusting our whole self to him. It's, it's embracing him. It's giving our life to him. Oh, there was something I wanted to say here. Okay, what is it? 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 Um, uh, 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 uh. I forgot. All right, so... As Jesus goes on, he talks about in verse 32, Most surely I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread in heaven. They were saying, well, Moses gave us bread from heaven. Why don't you give us bread from heaven? And Jesus said, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. You see how confused we get? Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. God gave you bread from heaven. Let me tell you something even more. I am the bread from heaven. This is the first I am statement, official I am statement. I'm the bread of heaven. I'm the one that will give you more than a temporary fix for your soul. I'm the one who will satisfy you completely. If you believe in me, you'll never hunger or thirst again. I'm the bread who satisfies completely. All right. So that, that, that is what we need. We need Jesus. And when we come to him and believe in him, he will satisfy us completely. Let, let, I have one line, bottom of 46 and beginning of 47. When we come to Jesus by faith, believing in him with all that we are, then we will taste more than baked morsels of perishable nuggets. We will have more than mere moments of despair's absence. We will find life in all its fullness forever. That's what Jesus does for us. Uh, verses 36 through 40 tells us that Jesus secures and satisfies forever those who believe in him. He says, uh, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 38. Can I just talk just for a second here and make some application? Now, being a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, what does that mean your vocation is? Yeah, follow, you're going to follow Jesus, right? That, that's the passion of your life. You're a follower of Jesus. You, you've uh, believed on Jesus, and so now you're following him. Now, here is the attitude that Jesus had from the beginning of his earthly ministry to the end of his earthly ministry. I've come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You're a follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. When did we think it was okay for us to do our own will, not the one, will of the one who has saved us? I mean, we don't like to talk like it in such bare terms. We like to, we like to cloak it in nice spiritual-sounding words and phrases, but the bottom line is, again, anytime we elevate our will above God's will, we are not mature followers of Jesus. We're rebellious sinners. It's just that simple. Followers of Jesus follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying it's always easy. It's hard for me. I know it's hard for you. My will is a strong voice in my life. How about you? But like Jesus, 
empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, we need to make sure that we listen more to the voice of God's will and follow it than we do the voice of our will to follow it. All right, that's what I wanted to say a few minutes ago. All right, so uh, now, uh, moving on. Verse 41. Uh, The Jews complained about him because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus therefore answered and said, don't murmur among yourselves. Stop murmuring. Stop grumbling. Stop complaining. Uh, No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. And as it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Surely I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, again grumbling, they couldn't help it, Uh, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So as we look at this passage, just a couple of things. Verse 38, Jesus declared that he was the fulfillment of God's desire to satisfy humanity. Um, The Jews were upset uh, because they knew that Jesus uh, was in the house of Mary and Joseph. And so how could he say he's the bread from heaven? Um, And and, and so Jesus wanted to kind of push back on them and really condemn them with his words. He said that uh, only those whom whom God the Father draws are going to come to Jesus. Now, I want you to to hear that. That's verses 43 and 44. Uh, He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and then I'll raise him up in the last day. This is, again, a picture of God's grace from God's initiative. It is all of God's grace. We're not going to come to Jesus unless God the Father draws us to Jesus it's what we see in John 3 when we looked at the spirit blows, the wind blows where it wills, and so does the spirit of God. And, and, uh, and, 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 and so as we look at this, we need to understand that John 6 says clearly that those who are going to be raised up on the last day are those who have been drawn to Jesus by the Father. And when they're drawn to Jesus by the Father, Jesus says, I'm going to take hold of them and I'm not going to let them go. I've got them forever. 
and I'll raise them up in the last day. Okay? Uh, and, and, you know, that, that's, that's challenging for some. And, and it's challenging for me sometimes. All right, so uh, God must draw us to Jesus. Faith in Jesus delivers life forever. That's verses 47 through 51. Jesus gave his flesh to be sacrificed for sinners so that those who would come to him uh, in faith receive forgiveness for sins and life everlasting. Jesus says, hey, listen, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's talking about his sacrifice. He's talking about his death on the cross. He's talking about... Uh, consuming him. There's a parallel here that we find about uh, around the term abide. Uh, Jesus said, the, the, if, if you eat my flesh, you're abiding in me just as I abide in my father. And, and, and there's another place where we find in John's gospel, him using that phraseology about abiding. Does anybody know where it is? John 15. Uh, Jesus says, abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me. So there is a comparison, I believe, between eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus and abiding in him as, as, a, as a branch to the root, uh, as a branch to the vine. And, and so uh, the, the eat flesh, drink blood, uh, he wasn't saying you've got to be cannibalistic, but he is saying you've got to receive the forgiveness that I give through my own sacrifice, and you have to abide in me. You have, to, you have to be connected to me. Um, the way he said it chased a lot of people away. I've got seven minutes. Oh! All right. Am I going to make it? Y'all are optimistic. Okay. So after he talks all this talk about eating flesh and drinking blood, by the way, top of page 49, when Jesus speaks of his flesh and blood, he's speaking about his whole person. He offers himself fully to those who believe in him, and we must take all of him for ourselves as the source of satisfaction. Jesus gives himself sacrificially to us so that we might live, and we must embrace him as God's gift for a satisfied life. Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who satisfies, fulfills, and gives us life. Only Jesus will be able to raise us up in the last day. Only Jesus. All right? So now, verses 60 through 71, uh, don't have time to read it. Uh, but uh, bottom line is, they heard it and they walked away. Uh, this is where the crowd says, I don't think so. Um, and so, uh, verse 61, Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, and he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Uh, Jesus is being very uh, clear about who he is. As the bread that is descended from heaven, he talks again about ascending uh, to the Father. And uh, then he says that uh, the Spirit gives life, uh, and, and the words that he speaks uh, are words that give life. And uh, for us to experience that life, we must yield ourselves to the Spirit of God uh, rather than be carnally minded, Romans 8, 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. We need to have our lives focused and fixed on the things that Jesus says, submitting ourselves to him. And then verses 67 through uh, 69, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away also? 
And Simon answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter and the disciples didn't leave because Jesus was the only one who had given them the words that give them life. And they believed that Jesus, this great confession, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Chapters 5 and 6.